0: Neuro Pathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neuro rehab, and psychiatry.
1: Intracranial hemorrhage is a life-threatening condition, the outcome of which can be improved by skilled surgical and intensive care. However, very few advancements have been made in the field in recent years to progress the prognosis of patients who experience an intracranial hemorrhage. In today's episodes of Neural Pathways, we're discussing the way forward for intracranial hemorrhage diagnosis and treatment with a focus on the collaborative efforts occurring across neovascular specialists. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Drs. Bain and Gomez join me for today's conversation. Dr. Bain is a neurosurgeon and head of cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgery in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Dr. Gomez is a, neur- is a vascular neurologist, neurocritical care specialist, and head of the neurointensive care units at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Mark and Joelle, welcome to NeuroPathways. Thanks for having us. My favorite neurologist is the great Canadian C. Miller Fisher, who, among other contributions, wrote The Mechanism of Intracranial Hemorrhage Growth. C. Miller said, You learn neurology stroke by stroke. Fisher talked about hemorrhages growing, or the domino or avalanche effect, where one ruptured vessel triggers bleeding into the next. So I'd like to start or set the stage for today's discussion by addressing the current state of intracranial hemorrhage. Can each of you address the state of practice in your current field? Dr. Gomez, why don't you go first?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, you're correct. And, and uh, Miller Fisher's seminal focus was primarily uh, described on patients with pontine hemorrhages based on uh, observations that he uh, made in the pathology lab. And what he described, we would, nowadays, we would call sort of a spot sign uh, that we see uh, on patients early on uh, during ICH. But to uh, address your question, uh, unfortunately, there is not a lot of very specific management, either medical or surgical, for patients with ICH. Uh, it's primarily supportive care in the intensive care unit, typically. Although that is trying to change a little bit. Blood pressure management seems to be a main focus of medical therapy after ICH. There have been a couple of very important influential trials, both interact to and attack 2 which looked at different thresholds or ranges of blood pressure after an acute ICH and tried to determine outcomes. Both studies were technically negative, unfortunately. However, some uh, post hoc analysis shows some potentially signal uh, in more intensive uh, blood pressure lowering. So, a lot of the efforts early on uh, go into um, uh, blood pressure control, as I mentioned. Then, the, the other big area for medical management has to do with um, antipopulation reversal or reversal in patients who, who are either warfarin or some sort of uh, direct. Uh, uh, 10A inhibitor which are becoming more common these days uh, and so a lot of effort also is being uh, put into that but by and large uh, many of the or most of the hemorrhages that we see are spontaneous uh, we think related to hypertension or amyloid angiopathy, and as I already mentioned uh, not uh, very specific uh, treatments available uh, thus far.
1: So maybe one of the best things we can do is try and prevent the person from having a hemorrhage in the first place. So risk factor modulation. What should we be doing? Uh, What would decrease our risk of having a hemorrhage?
2: Yeah, great question. So certainly uh, blood pressure control would be the the, the most important uh, thing that we could tackle. Um, And then other other sort of general uh, measures that still I think would be helpful include the reduction of smoking, improving your overall cardiovascular health, uh, uh, including exercise, uh, would be very helpful. uh, as well to try to decrease, but you're right. So prevention is key for this disease. Unfortunately, so even if you control blood pressure in the population at large, you're still going to have patients that, for one reason or another, are going to um, are going to experience an intracranial hemorrhage. So we still need to to find effective therapies. And happy to talk about the efforts that we have ongoing and where we see the field going in the in the future.
3: And Dr. Bain, your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Stevens, for having me. Um, This is a a field that um, is, I I think, somewhat of an orphaned field uh, when we talk about stroke as a whole. Um, Intracerebral hemorrhage, uh, unfortunately, um, suffers because there's been a couple of trials uh, that were done that that really were negative and they've had a large impact on how um, we view and how we treat intracerebral hemorrhage. Uh, Those trials uh, are the STITCH trials Um, These are large um, randomized trials that looked at surgery uh, versus medical management for intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, Both of those trials, or stitch one and stitch two, really show that there was no benefit if surgeons like myself went in and operated on these hemorrhages. There was no benefit to functional recovery and there was no even survival benefit. So patients were still um, dying if we operated on patients. So Those trials have really really stuck with the neurosurgical community and I think the uh, intensive care community. And uh, because of that, we really have not seen uh, surgery as a valid option uh, for people that are suffering large hemorrhagic strokes like intracerebral hemorrhage. Now, when you look at um, other trials, there's other trials throughout the world um, and uh, uh, some of these are old trials, um, where you look at some potentially minimally invasive or minimal access approaches to removing these hemorrhages. So what that means is that you have a procedure um, that where we use uh, typically small tube-like retractors that we can insert down into the hematoma and remove it. And the thought is, is that the reason those initial trials were negative is we were just creating a ton of collateral damage on the way in. Uh, and also when we were removing the hemorrhage, so people weren't getting better. So we're hopeful that some new technologies that have just uh, come out um, in the past five years or so uh, will allow us to access hematomas in a minimally invasive way and then remove the hematoma so that patients can get functional improvement.
1: So Dr. Gomez, standard of care, as you mentioned, has probably not changed a lot over the years. Where do we need to go medically?
2: Right. You know, uh, speaking of blood pressure control, one of the uh, things that we found when we looked at our own data is that that intensive uh, blood pressure control over cellulose uh, blood pressure control can actually lead or is associated at least with the development of ischemic stroke, somewhat paradoxically. Initially, we struggled to understand that, but we think that uh, these patients have a vasculopathy or most of them do. So in that uh, spectrum and that continuum of the vasculopathy, uh, vessels could rupture lead to ICH, but also if you hypoperfuse uh, acutely abruptly, uh, you can end up with an ischemic stroke. As I said, somewhat paradoxically, uh, subsequently uh, data from those two uh, big studies that I mentioned earlier, INTERACT and ATAC, actually showed that uh, blood pressure variability, in particular, was associated with worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things that we're doing right now, we got a, a, a grant that it, um, to allow us to look at the effect of blood pressure variability using different intravenous uh, uh, antihypertensive agents. We think that based on pharmacokinetic properties, some of these agents may actually uh, afford a, a more controlled um, uh, sort of reduction of blood pressure uh, with less uh, blood pressure variability overall. And we hope that that could be a, a, a sort of an avenue for improved outcomes, so we started at the very beginning, just taking two different drugs, comparing the pharmacokinetic properties, and in particular, uh, looking at the blood pressure variability of these patients. Uh, the other area that I think is important to mention in blood pressure uh, control, uh, right now we use a one one size fits all approach, which I don't think uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, if you have a small uh, capsular bleed, uh, it's not the same as having a very large lower um, ICH. Uh, so to that end, we, uh, and thanks to, to uh, our advanced multimodal monitoring program, uh, we're now using cerebral autoregulation guided blood pressure management. And I'm working with one of our fellows who's uh, also similarly working on the grant to start um, understanding this process a little bit better and to see whether using a cerebral autoregulation as the guide for the optimal range for blood pressure may also lead uh, to improve the outcomes. And that's just two examples of uh, sort of how medical management may, may evolve in the, in the future.
1: So, with subarachnoid hemorrhage, you can certainly see vasospasm. Do you see that with intracerebral hemorrhage or you don't?
2: Not, not commonly. And, and, Mark, feel free to, to uh, comment on that as well.
3: Yeah, very, very uncommonly we see vasospasm. Uh, you know, vasospasm with subarachnoid hemorrhage, we, it, we usually almost always see it when an aneurysm ruptures. So, it's very rare in this patient population.
1: Is there any role for cooling patients with intracerebral hemorrhage?
2: That's a great question. And, and uh, the studies that have done so far are relatively small. And cooling, as you know, even for cardiac arrest, where there is some uh, benefit that has been shown uh, of late, the, that world has been shaken by, by the TTM2 uh, trial, uh, showing that all you need to do is prevent fever. So um, years ago, with uh, one of our collaborators here, we actually wanted to do a study on normothermia and look at an inflammatory markers. I do think that another important medical target is the perihematomal edema development and the secondary injury um, that happens after an ICH. And we think that a lot of that secondary injury is mediated by inflammation. As you know, fever and temperature modulation uh, do impact uh, the development of the inflammatory response. So I think that there might be a, a role for that in the future, although certainly we don't we don't know that currently. Uh, another effort, and, and Mark can expand a little bit more on this, that we're doing is trying to characterize what that uh, immunological response looks like in the perihematomal region. So when he goes there and tries to evacuate some of the, these hematomas, we're collaborating with researchers at Lerner to try to, to characterize and understand a little bit better what the immune response looks
3: like. Mark? Yeah. So, you know, we are, I, I feel like we're, we're sort of early in our experience uh, with interest hemorrhage. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot that uh, we need to study and a lot we, we need to do. Currently, I think we are at the point where we're sort of honing our, our surgical skills. If you look at you know, where ischemic stroke was in 2013 when we had all of these negative trials and, and you know doing mechanical thrombectomy and opening up blood vessels for you know lack of blood flow or ischemic strokes that that procedure almost died because of negative trials and then all of a sudden in 2015 we got better you know techniques better devices and we had better design trials, better selection, and all of a sudden, all these trials are positive. And look where we are today. Now we are building whole stroke systems and, and getting patients to the hospital quicker and, and having amazing patient outcomes when we're opening blood vessels. Intracerebral hemorrhage is a field, I think, is sort of where stroke was in 2013. We don't necessarily understand the proper patients to operate on. Um, we're still sort of honing our technique surgically, like I said. And as John mentioned, we we don't truly understand, you know, what the inflammatory cascade is around these these hematomas and, and how can we, you know, help patients by stopping inflammation. So I think, You know the next five to ten years in this space are going to be uh, absolutely fascinating Um, we're working on um, better devices like i said um, you know we can even do this through endoscopic approaches where we can make small burr holes you know placing these little tubes about as big as a straw down into the hemorrhage um, you know remove the hemorrhage with minimal collateral damage to the surrounding brain so the hope there is that you um, can stop pressure on the surrounding you know, neurons and the surrounding white matter tracts. By getting the hematoma out, we can reduce the edema and the swelling reaction that happens in the secondary injury. And uh, we even done research uh, looking at these spot signs. You know, This is active extravasation of contrast on CAT scans suggesting there's active bleeding happening. And we know very well that if we leave those alone, those hemorrhages will continue to expand and most likely the patient outcome will be fatal. And so we've actively targeted those spot signs with our devices and found bleeding vessels that we can coagulate and stop the hematoma from expanding. So all these, I think, are these therapeutic windows where we can potentially interact. The challenge now is, to, like I said, to hone these skills and uh, to make them standard across practitioners so we can study them. Uh, and then we need well-designed, randomized trials to prove that this is working. In our experience, and and Jean and I have have, have, uh, shared patients where we've seen this, with the properly selected patient in the right time with the right procedure, we've had dramatic results where patients come in, you know, not speaking, uh, paralyzed on one side. We take them to surgery, and immediately after surgery, they start talking, their arm starts moving. Two days later, they go home from the hospital. So, that type of result is possible. We just have to figure out, you know, what the best patient to do this on who that patient is, and uh, how can we select that patient get them to our hospital quick enough.
1: So, Mark, maybe you just mentioned it, but how do I identify the person that's at risk to have a progressive hemorrhage? Is it a spot sign? Is it something else? Do we not know enough? How, how do we know patient A is going to bleed and progress and patient B isn't?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's all those things, uh, to be honest. I, I think there's uh, some of it we don't know. It's hard to predict. Um, it makes sense, certainly, if you get a patient early enough in the hemorrhage evolution. Uh, for instance, we had a patient that came in within 45 minutes of their uh, hemorrhage or their symptoms uh, earlier this week. So if you get somebody that early, you know all of these hemorrhages are going to expand, right? They're in the process of having the hemorrhage happening. Um, But I think there are certain factors we're looking at that can predict expansion. Uh, Certainly the spot sign phenomenon is a uh, well-published radiologic sign. I mean, it's just a piece of contrast that you see in in the middle of the blood clot or the hematoma which signifies active extravasation. So uh, depending on how many spot signs, the complexity of them, uh, the size of them, we can pretty much predict that 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 hemorrhage is going to get bigger. There's all sorts of other signs on CAT scans. There's island signs, swirl signs, all these these crazy names. But basically, they're ways of looking at the hematoma that that make the hematoma look unstable or look like that. It has the tendency to expand. But also, you know, John and I are sometimes surprised. We don't know who's going to expand, and we think a hematoma is going to be stable, and then you know, six hours later, you get the CAT scan or uh, and it's bigger or you have a neurological deterioration. So I still think there's some work to be done in that realm.
1: So somebody comes in, they're on a blood thinner, stop the blood thinner or reverse it. When can you do surgery on these folks?
3: Well, we've been pretty aggressive about trying to to push the limit uh, on this because we don't want that hematoma to continually be interacting with the brain. With most blood thinners and with our ability to reverse them and our techniques getting better and better, meaning that we have control of the vasculature, meaning that the we have instruments and devices that allow us to coagulate vessels, uh, to take care of oozing tissue and things like that, we can actually get in uh, as soon as possible. So some of the old trials, for instance, the MISTI trials that uh, are well known, uh, were all negative trials, especially MISTI-3, that was the, the, the phase three randomized trial that was just done. You know, they were requiring a six hour stability scan so that people wouldn't run into bleeding during these procedures. And you know, when I think about that, that, that seems sort of ridiculous to me that you would wanna wait six hours, let that hemorrhage sit there, causing pressure, causing damage. And also have the possibility of expanding in those six hours. So with our current techniques and the, and the uh, surgical uh, technologies that we have available now, we are really trying to go hyper-acute, meaning, um, you know, as soon as the patient gets in, we take the surgery. So uh, sometimes we're in even, you know, within, you know, an hour to four hours, it's been some of our earlier times. Mm-hmm.
1: And the development of, of better and smaller or more surgically friendly devices to get the blood out. You want to expand on that at all?
3: Yeah. So you know, we, we again, like I sort of said before, we we think that the the failure of conventional craniotomy and large open surgery, you know, to show any benefit was probably because you know these were emergent procedures. Uh, you know, you made a big incision, big craniotomy. Uh, you know, we open up the dura and the brain would just sort of herniate out, would get very hyperemic, and then we would just make an opening where we thought we should go in the brain to get to the hematoma and go through normal brain and remove the, the hemorrhage. Uh, and if you think about that, it's a pretty aggressive, pretty dramatic type of a procedure. The procedures we have now, uh, when we first started doing these, we utilized you know radiologic imaging with DTI imaging to look at the fiber tracks of the brain so instead of just going in kind of blindly guessing where to go we would use dti imaging to look at the the white matter tracks of the brain to pick a trajectory that was friendly to the brain meaning that we would go parallel to the nerve fibers so we weren't damaging these fibers and then the devices that we have now are are, are basically uh, conical retractors they're tubes and we can navigate those using, you know, uh, imaging software and DTI imaging. So we have a very nice trajectory to get to the hemorrhage. We spare the, the fiber tracks. And then to make, that's just the access. And then to make things even better, we have resection tools there are these things called the myriad or there's these evacuators. They have little side apertures and they have these little cutters on them that we can just very controlled pull in the hemorrhage and then evacuate the hemorrhage that way. And so we can almost you know very smoothly remove hemorrhage and not just sort of pull it out of the brain in a very sort of dramatic way. So the techniques are getting more and more brain friendly and as you said, user friendly. And I think that's gonna make the huge difference in outcome. The other thing is, is that we are getting a much better evacuation rate with these devices, meaning that in the MISTI trials, there was no question uh, that the more hemorrhage you removed from the brain, the better the patients did. And, you know, if you think about it, if we're only getting 50% of the hemorrhage out, you know, that's probably not good enough. And so these devices that we have now, in our experience, we were able to get not over 95% evacuation rates almost on all of our patients. So we're getting the hemorrhage out. We're getting the job done. Now I think it's time to start studying this.
1: So looking forward to additional techniques, uh, you know, we're using high frequency uh, focused ultrasound here for lesionectomies for tremor patients. And we're using low frequency ultrasound to open the blood brain barrier to try and give various medications. And there's been some thought that we could maybe use ultrasound to loosen up the the uh, blood clot that's there that could then use one of these devices to suck out the hemorrhage that's there. Uh, thoughts on that? Uh, I know it's very early on, but uh, either of you, any comments?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I can start. You know, one of the harder things about uh, dealing with these blood clots uh, is that they're very heterogeneous. Some of the blood clots are very liquid-like, and some are very thick and, and adherent to the brain. And so you can imagine when you're going in a minimally invasive way with a, with a tube to try to remove this, sometimes it's, it's, it's very difficult to get a full evacuation or potentially traumatic to the brain to get a full evacuation. So, you know, there's some data on this uh, originally, um, and we kind of looked at that data and then have been doing some just sort of uh, uh, early experiments with some models. But one of the thoughts was if we could liquefy a hemorrhage using ultrasound. Make it more in this liquid state so that it was easier to evacuate, meaning that we could take, you know, some of the tubes that we're using now are about eight millimeters in diameters, but if we could use something that was like a straw size or even smaller than that. And we could insert that into the brain and be able to fully drain the hematoma, um, it would be way less traumatic to the brain. So, that's something that we're working on now. Uh, We have shown uh, with our system here that we have been able uh, to liquefy hemorrhage. And we can see that both on uh, MRI. And we can also see it when we just open up our little our little model and we can see that the blood was clotted, and now it's, it's almost like water consistency and we've shown that we can drain with very very fine tubes so that would be a really amazing thing if we could take a patient that came in stabilize them bring them down to the mri suite do the ultrasound minimally invasively drain that hemorrhage do an mri make sure it's all out and then take them back up to the icu for dr gomez to work his magic with us as intensive care treatment
0: Dr.
1: Gomez, any experience with this or thoughts?
3: Uh, not specifically
2: with ultrasound. Uh, certainly makes sense that uh, it's a technique that certainly helps facilitate drainage. And, and as Mark said, we know from the Misi trials that there seems to be a target, a sweet spot—15 cc's or, or less of blood uh, residual after evacuation—seem to be associated with uh, a much better outcome. So at least we we seem to have a target, and uh, hopefully this technology should help us uh, get there. The one thing that I wanted to, to, to add though, is that there is a, a significant amount of nihilism uh, surrounding the treatment of these patients. And oftentimes poor outcome I think uh, is part or is the consequence of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so it's something that we need to keep in mind just to, to give you a quick example. We use an ICH score, it's a clinical score that gives you an idea of what the predicted mortality, 30-day mortality is for a population of ICH patients. Uh, It shouldn't be used obviously to uh, individual patients, but it's done all the time. Uh, But what we did, we looked back at the patients that had undergone minimally invasive evacuation uh, of their hematoma. And as a whole, we looked at what the ICH score was and what the predicted mortality for that cohort was based on the ICH score, which has been validated in the past. And actually it performed really poorly uh, after you have hematoma evacuation by these means, uh, which tells you that uh, I suspect uh, in this patient population, at least we might be giving them and giving the, the family wrong data as to what the, the potential outcome is because we're using a, a, an ICH score that was derived from a completely different patient cohort. It also uh, exemplifies how removing the mass effect uh, very early on can impact mortality. We know that that mortality benefit is there based on our preliminary experience. Uh, obviously, we have to, to understand a little bit better the effect on functional outcomes, but um, just a reminder to the listeners that we need to be careful not to be creating self-fulfilling prophecies for this patient population.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and I'm glad you you brought that up, and I it goes back a little bit to what Dr. Bain had mentioned in terms of the earlier trials uh, that were negative trials, and there wasn't much motion, and then you get a, a few positive trials, and standard of care changes. So I think we all need to be cognizant of that in our different fields. So any last comments on your hopes for the field other than what we've discussed and how we might advance care for these, these patients? Uh, anything different from what we've discussed so far?
3: I'd like to add, you know, I, there are a couple of important uh, trials uh, right now that are ongoing. So um, one uh, randomized trial that we're uh, uh, leading enrollment in, in the nation right now is called the Enriched Trial. Uh, It's a randomized trial that that has randomized patients with certain size hemorrhages to medical management versus this certain minimally invasive approach. Uh, That trial is at, I think, uh, 273 patients. Uh, We need to get to 300. We'll know some outcomes there. That's really going to, I think, guide the next steps, at least from the surgical management side. We're going to learn a lot of lessons from this trial, like we learned lessons from the MISTI 3 trials then I think it'll give us another you know, stepping stone to kind of build uh, similar trials in the future. But that's kind of where we're at from the surgical standpoint. But I, I, I think that we, just as Dr. Gomez said, I, I think that we need to really look at this disease um, and, and take some lessons from the ischemic stroke side. I think this, this ICH story really mimics the ischemic stroke story. And, and, and it's a very similar process. I think there's tissue to save. Um, I think there's acuity. Uh, and I think if we just sit back and, and and you know, say, oh, yeah, that patient's going to have weakness, this, uh, that's the, absolutely the wrong thing to do. We need to be looking at this in a controlled way, um, doing studies so that we can, you know, better serve our patients with this horrible disease.
2: Yeah, from my end, I'm really excited, really curious to see uh, what the future holds for immune modulation to, to minimize secondary injury. I think that's going to be key. There are some early preliminary trials using drugs like Fingolimod, for instance, and, and even uh, COX inhibitors that had suggested some some potential benefit in outcomes. Now, having a more targeted approach, once we understand better what's happening in that perihematomal region, I think it's going to be key and, and maybe a significant part of improving outcomes for these patients.
1: Well, doctors Bain and uh, Gomez, I'd like to uh, thank you for joining me today. Sounds like very exciting things ahead. Really looking forward Uh, to see the results of that clinical trial that's coming out, and I'm hoping that it changes uh, how individuals will look at patients that have intracerebral hemorrhage. So I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro, or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word.